Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories to tell. Today we're chatting with a panel of social media experts, and we're talking about the role of social media in the 2016 presidential campaigns. Joining us today is Dr. Jerry Miller, professor in the School of Communication Studies at Ohio University. He's an expert in candidate image creation. Dr. Karen Riggs is a professor in media arts and studies at Ohio University, and she's the director of the Social Media Certificate Program. And Dr. Lake Kahn teaches in the School of Media Arts and Studies but also heads the social media analytics research team called the Smart Lab as part of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. It seemed to me in 2012 that social media was a millennial strategy. It, it, mm -hmm. was, it was a, it was a it was. strategy for the young. Mm -hmm. And it still is, except that that strategy has expanded, has expanded to include all of us as elderly yeah. <laughs> and so forth. But you Seasoned. Cannot, Seasoned yeah, is the word. You've got to get the millennial support. Bernie Sanders' campaign understood that. Unfortunately, for many other reasons, it didn't work out for Bernie. But without that social media strategy, Bernie Sanders, certainly without who did not get the least amount of attention from the mainstream media for months and months, would not have become the figure that he was. And he had a message that he could carry that had a great deal of appeal, a great deal of resonance for reaching a men, um, millennials where they live. And that was not on Facebook. That was on Instagram, Snapchat, and Twitter. But all these campaign staffs put together this idea of, oh, my God, there's Snapchat. How do we cope with that? Snapchat wasn't around that much in 2012. No, no, it wasn't. And so what, what was happening then is candidates developed and paid for their own filters, or at least their PACs paid, paid for their own filters. And this is an example of where social media becomes evident as a conversation, not as a top-down no feedback kind of communication because anybody can pay for a Snapchat filter. And so if you are somebody's pack, then you can pay for a Snapchat filter that makes somebody's enemy look bad. I see. So All people right. understand that, you know, anybody can use it. So, so anyway, um, in this time, Trump has almost 13 million followers. Hillary Clinton has considerably fewer followers. But the question is, and I think Lake is going to be able to talk about this a little bit, is what does that mean? What does it mean to have Twitter followers? For the most part, we can assume, let's say, that it means supporters. Followers translate into supporters. That's not necessarily true with Trump. It's largely true with Clinton. But Trump is such spectacle, such a source of anger provocation, discussed, but especially celebrity spectacle and entertainment that many of those followers, many, many, and we don't know how many, but many, many of Trump's followers 
are not actually Trump's Well, I followed followers. him. I followed him, you know, and I, I made the excuse mm-hmm. that I was doing it for news purposes. I've always but, wondered but, about but, you. But really, <laughs> really, yes. I was doing it just so that I would have mm-hmm. a front row seat for the spectacle. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. I, I didn't want to get things second and third hand. I wanted to be right there on the front line. So, yeah. so yeah. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. certainly uh, I would not be considered a, a party faithful regular. Mm-hmm. And this <laughs> but, is exactly why my husband watches Fox News. Not all the time, but for the same reasons that you did. It's really interesting to keep an eye on what Fox News is doing. But in terms of Trump, he is unfiltered. He goes off message entirely too often to suit his staff. It's really, really too bad that he does for him, but he is authentic in his tweets. He may be lying, but he definitely has an authenticity of letting Trump be Trump. You know, he goes on this late night rants. He does a lot of bombast, you know, what you'd expect from Trump. Clinton, on the other hand, she began with a much more positive use of social networking. And, of course, she was forced over time, because of the way that it was looking for her, to stand up and give it right back to Trump. She's not as good as being snarky, she though. Is, well, right. She's affectless, yes, almost. But she does. I mean, they fall flat. I go, yeah, okay. Right, right. Certainly by comparison. That's very sweet. Yeah, right. Very, very sweet, yeah. But her positive messages on Twitter are, uh, or even her constructive critiques on Twitter that she uses are going to be, you know, sort of a point that she makes. And then she backs it up with an article or some kind of data or she's retweeting Bernie or somebody else. And it's kind of typical politician work. It's not what we're seeing from Trump. Well, it, let's just take today, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, yesterday, his, his campaign manager on, on Meet the Press said, we're behind. Mm-hmm. You know, the, all the polls, and we have to give them some credibility, we're behind. Now, uh, being around politics all my life, she was doing that for a purpose. She wasn't doing, oh, poor us, we're losing. What she was trying to do was rally the base mm-hmm. to get out the vote, to get out the vote for both early voting right. and to right. get out the vote uh, two weeks in advance of Election Day. Which was a strategic choice so that was it poor. Was, it was, yeah. it, but it was strategic, <laughs> and that's why she was doing it. Mm-hmm. Well, today, around noon to 1 o'clock, well, her boss tweets out, don't believe the polls. Mm-hmm. They're all a media conspiracy. We're really ahead. Yeah, yeah, which is typical sort of <laughs> convolution of any kind of internal communication within his campaign. I'll get back to you, Karen, but Jerry, in the real world, mm-hmm. <laughs> the way it usually is, that would be seen as a negative. The campaign manager saying one thing and the candidate saying another, that mm-hmm. would be see as a terrible faux pas, right? Absolutely. And I think to the traditional viewers and listeners, that may be the interpretation. But the, the personalization of social media um, provides a, a lot of support for Trump's statement. And so he's contributing to this uh, perspective as well. And we've seen some contradictions between the Trump campaign managers and surrogates and then Trump coming out and saying something completely different on his own, whether it be through traditional platforms or the social media. But again, it's that personalization that social media has enabled that that establishes his credibility and believability among his constituents. Okay, I'm going to bring Lake in and then because he's itching to talk yeah, about it. And uh, you run the smart lab. You do a lot of uh, social media statistics. Help us out in all so of this. So when, when Karen mentioned rightly, and I would like to um, add to that, the 2012 election was big on data. Mm-hmm. 2016 is even bigger. It's even bigger bi- in it's data? It's even bigger in data, on big data, in the sense that we are to- not only talking about looking at the numbers of who's tweeted what or who's uh, reshared what. We're also talking about connecting the dots, and that's where it is a big challenge. Help me out with that. So when we talk about big data, it means nothing if we do not 
try to look at the context. We also want to connect the social data to this big data. And what is happening, especially in this election, is that instead of thinking about a data strategy in which we broadcast messages to the entire country, which is, of course, happening, we're also thinking about looking at local issues. We're sitting in a swing state of Ohio. Um, that makes this even more important. Um, we need to think about what local issues are and then target your audiences accordingly. And that's where a lot of these candidates are also looking into local issues. Looking at the importance of local issues, we came up with the election analytics challenge in the Smart Lab. And we were l covering the third presidential debate the other night. Um, we realized that California, New Jersey, New York, Texas, and Florida are traditionally states where there's a lot of activity. Uh, and that was true. We also saw that um, media is still playing a very big role, even on social media. So the mainstream media, like Fox News, um, they were widely retweeted. They, they had a lot of influence. They had a lot of people tweeting. That's right, <laughs> CNN including. Uh, but Fox News seems yeah. to go ahead of that. Um, Karen also said that Trump has a bigger follower base, and that's very true. He's very active. Not only does he tweet himself, he also his campaign staff also tweets. His tweet patterns are also quite erratic in the sense that um, very early morning, tweet. 3 a.m., <laughs> we see his tweets. And that's, that's, um, that's quite interesting. It, 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 I have to uh, personal note here. It's the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning. Right. You know, I wake up six six thirty in that neighborhood, and the first thing I do is see if he get hold of our smartphone. Right. Yes, exactly. that's right. And that's why um, I'm not sure if he's doing it on purpose, but somebody must have told him, uh, or it's just his personality that entertainment sells. Um, we know through research that entertainment is one of the major motives why people even visit social media, and Donald Trump rightly provides us that. We may not want to hear him. Uh, some of those things are very outrageous right. for a lot of people uh, around the world. And, and that's something interesting I'll also talk about. When we were looking at this live monitor, we were seeing tweets being um, at, the, at the time when we were monitoring this debate from Australia. I mean, why would anybody be interested in uh, you know, this? But the whole world is watching this election. And it is entertaining, not only for us, for everywhere where English is a medium, um, in which people understand what is going on. So Trump was tweeting, um, and then a lot of the other candidates were saying things, but media was playing a major role in retweeting it, mm -hmm. and, and many other um, players were there. So if I divide it by the type of influence, so I want to really touch upon this important concept because a lot of people are running after influence. We see that there are internet sensational stars on Snapchat and where this is a challenge because we need to measure that. It's not easy to do that. In which uh, people just provide entertainment which may not even add up too much. Uh, doing silly stuff, I mean, riding a skateboard, uh, jumping up and down, it gets attention. Um, and that's why we can see there's a lot of value in what Trump does for a, a lot of people. Uh, the kind of things he says. Uh, and we laugh on them. We kind of wonder. It's ironic that we have to laugh on that. Um, so sort of these, like the grumpy cat. <laughs> exactly. So this might be the new the cat same phenomenon. It it's video. the same right. concept? Uh, it is very similar yeah. in the sense because entertainment is, is the motive here, the dominant motive. So when we look, type, uh, look at influencers and their important role, we're looking at four types of influencers. Number one being candidates themselves. So we see two candidates now, Hillary and Trump. People are following them because they, they influence what's going on. They're, they're saying things. And we know we have to choose between these two. The second one being uh, media organizations. They're also very big and because people are following what they're saying and it still matters what Fox, CNN, The Hill, New York Times, Politico, they say on social media. Then we have other influencers like Obama, Kerry, Bill Clinton, and lastly, celebrities play a big role. Now, this is something I really would like to touch upon uh, in this talk. Ben Affleck has 2.5 million followers on Twitter. Ben Affleck has publicly, as I understand, uh, if I remember, he publicly endorsed Clinton, and he's, uh, he's actually fundraised for, for Hillary. 
Um, Lady Gaga has 64.2 million followers. 64. 64.2. <laughs> She's Whoa. near the top. Whoa. Right. But you know she doesn't. She doesn't come as high as. Katy Perry. Right. Uh, <laughs> and also there are two others, for example, endorsed that have endorsed Trump, like um, Phil Robertson, Christy Kelly, um, 17.8 thousand followers, not as many. Christy Kelly has 1.28 million followers. But here is something even more interesting. We cannot just rely on these numbers. For a lot of people, these are just vanity metrics. That's what they call them. Lots of followers. Mm-hmm. Can followers be bought? That's an important question. Before I came here, um, I had heard of a, uh, a new research coming out of Oxford that talked about how lots of more than half or close to that number of followers for Trump were fake. And this was very interesting. So what I did was in, uh, I was trying to look into that study because it hasn't been published yet. So we, can, we cannot really pay attention to that at this point. Uh, but it's still worth uh, talking about in the sense that I, there is some, a site called uh, Twitter Audit. If you Google, uh, you can find lots of sites which will tell you the real followers that you have. And out of the um, 9.8 million followers for Trump, we uh, or something like that, we had 7.3 real followers um, for Trump versus 4.6 million fake followers. And, they had a, and Trump had a 61.1% audit, audit score compared to Hillary, which had far lesser fake followers compared to Trump. Now, what does that tell us? Yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> in this age of algorithms, in this age of codes that people can write, there are bots known as Twitter bots sure. who are just tweeting out rubbish, to be honest. They are retweeting things. They are, um, it is adding to that chatter but at the same time, it makes our job as analysts harder because we have to sift through. It's right, adding right. to the clutter. It's adding to the clutter. But it might give an impression that they have lots of followers and there's a lot of discussion going around around mm-hmm. it. In the election challenge that we had uh, the other night, we realized that there were a lot more reshares for Fox News and Trump. Maybe that explains that. Um, or it could be true. Um, we were also interested uh, in knowing are women because women are being really impacted amongst other uh, targeted groups of people targeted on both sides from both right, sides right. women were tweeting far more than men and that was interesting at it, least from it, the data set that we is had. that usual do uh, women tweet more than men there are lots of studies that talk about women not being active sometimes uh, depending on the issues but it makes sense because the issue is so much related. The issues are so women-centric. They're so yeah. personal. They're, it's so personal that even men may be uh, inclined toward talking about that. Um, there were trending hashtags. Um, we talked about local issues, but the attention completely went off local issues uh, in, in, in our analysis. People were talking about Putin, abortion, which is local women, the wall, um, southern border, <laughs> or right. the wall of right. China. They were talking about open borders, which is which is a very important issue. Um, bad ombres. <laughs> it bad was ombres, a ha- trending right. hashtag. Trump, WikiLeaks. I also found that um, bigly, a new word in our dictionary. Bigly, B-I-G-L-Y. B-I-G-L-Y <laughs> was not. Anybody wants to look Was it up. tweeted by somebody else than Donald Trump. Because people got so inter- interested. It might also add to the entertainment value that. Mm-hmm. Bigly. So people have started using that word uh, more often. And such things were, were really catching our attention. It leads the students very excited to look at this data. But then didn't we also have such a nasty woman? I've got the yes. T-shirt. The qu- <laughs> I swear to God, I have the T-shirt. She showed me the T-shirt this morning. The, yep. the, that quote, I, I imagine that put things off the charts. That's right. Yeah, it really that, did. Yeah. You know, can I throw in a few things in response to the things Lake has said? Uh, You know, they're so important. One of these, you know, the thing about the hashtags, we find these terms coming up in other places as well that you can consider social. By the time that they get processed, they go back into being social. Bigly was searched on Google more than a quarter million times within an hour, within an hour after Trump utter the word. Wow. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, wow. you, can, you can just try to just imagine some sort of typology of the people, it, a lot of people, 
right? Nasty women was trending. Nasty yeah. wo- nasty woman was trending. T- Trump tapes, as you know, I'm sure, mm-hmm. trended for quite a long time. Um, and, and, you know, some other, some other things. I want to pick up on the entertainment value of what Lake was saying. One of these things is parody accounts. People follow parody accounts, especially now, ex- those... Explain to people well, what those are. Okay, so parody accounts is an account that belongs to somebody who expressly has established it to pose as the person who's being parodied. Oh, got it. Usually got it. to some humorous end. Got it. So there are all kinds of Trump parody accounts. There are Hillary parody accounts as well, but not nearly as many. And, and it's, it's They funny. say all the snarky things or, or the stupid things that, that people want them to right. say, right? And it's okay. well established, it's well established that left left leaning entertainers and people in general just are funnier. They they produce funnier memes, you know, because it seems to be more of anti-establishment, which is funny to poke at the powerful in, in kind of a sad way. It's so just more entertaining to read. It, it is yeah. entertaining to read. And but when we were talking about these entertainers, I mean, it goes back too, to just the whole idea of celebrity politics. Celebrity politics has drastically changed since 2012. We started seeing a lot more social media involvement, sort of endorsements and things like this. But what we're seeing now is we are seeing a lot less of co- a lot less coverage of celebrities. Oh, we're giving a dinner, you know, yeah, we're the, raising money. The big gala is, this seems is to be about, the, gone. Well, they have the big galas, right? But, but you know you what? They what's prominent in news is what the celebrities are doing actively unfiltered with regard to social media. So, for example, Scott Baio. Chachi. Chachi. Chachi from Happy Days is very active on Twitter, and he is very much in support of Donald Trump. Spoke as you at know. the Republican convention. Exactly, and he's very earnest. He brings out all of these uh, things that, you know, and he's, he's done some – there was a tweet that Baio – made in July, right before the public, uh, the RNC, that became very controversial. And it used a four-letter word to describe women, but in particular, Hillary Clinton. And that word begins with a C and ends with a T. It caused a huge backlash. But, you know, possibly, huge, possibly because uh, we were were (laughs) looking at Chachi, right? but then if we look at Hillary, she's got people like Robert De Niro creating videos that, you know, are very serious, you know, uploading them to YouTube, getting lots and lots of views and shares and and through various networks of social media where he's he's very earnest in his anger about the idea that the Republican candidate, this particular Republican candidate could be elected president of the United States. And, you know, here's a guy, here's a guy with a, a lot of clout, right? But also De Niro is a guy who reaches a certain age segment that isn't confined to millennials. So when we saw that video being shared on Facebook just until the cows came home, it, it packed a lot of power. But it was an older demographic. It was an older demographic. So, you know, with, with somebody like um, De Niro sharing this video, creating this video and sharing it on social media served in part a function of get out the vote. It wasn't just selling Clinton. It was about saying, you know, I'm scared that this guy is going to be president. Aren't you? I'm really angry about it. And sort of mobilizing maybe the Democratic base. Unfortunately, when Trump has worked on mobilizing his base, it wasn't a good strategy to begin with. So sure, he's going to get out the vote. But, you know, the electoral, col- the electoral college being what it is, it's not necessarily the right vote. So, you know, celebrities are using their clout in that way. It's really smart to do. Um, and then, you know, us, everyday people, right? We are creating, we're sharing memes, which are extremely funny. That is something new. We We saw tweeting with Hillary or whatever it was for a long time, but... What we're seeing now is something like Pepe the Frog, who symbolized, came to symbolize, had been a very popular 
cartoon character to be used in memes across social media for years. But now because now of— Now it's a racist right wing. It is. It uh, is, you know, alt-right, pep- beyond It was bizarre. Yeah. It was just a bizarre thing. What happened with the alt-right, then, you know, Eric Trump or Donald Trump Jr., I can't remember. One of the Trump. One of the siblings. Tweedle Trump. Um, but now what we have is we have these funny reactionary memes coming from the Democrats, or not really coming from the Democrats. It's coming from the people who are younger. It's coming from the Reddit kids. Yeah. Which is who you want, if you're Hillary Clinton, to get out and vote. Yeah. Jerry, I want to bring you in because I, I'm painting you, and I probably shouldn't, as the more traditionalist here because you have studied campaigns for, for years. Mm-hmm. This, this all seems out of control well, to, to a candidate who wants to very – used to be – Candidates wanted to very narrowly define themselves and have uh, a very calculated image. This seems like chaos. It's uh, and it's one of the challenges that candidates have in kind of controlling and creating an image, uh, because they don't really have much control. We used to say that political advertisements and then web pages were the only venues where candidates had complete control uh, of the message, and to a certain extent they do. But then you take a little snippet off the web page, you take something off the political advertisement, or you take a statement such as "deplorable" or "nasty woman." And that takes on a life of its own, and they lose control over those messages of any intent that they might have had. Not to mention the fact that with the media, everything is eternal. Everything that was said decades ago can become part of today's message. Um, And so in looking at this particular campaign, we do see some distinct differences between Trump and Clinton. I think the primary difference is that Clinton has approached it more from an institutionalized perspective in controlling the message. And so we aren't getting as much attention. It's not providing as much fodder, I think, for for social media outlets for us. But that builds into her personality of being highly hyper-controlled and not very transparent. Not, absolutely, because it is a controlled message compared to Trump, who will tweet at three o'clock in the morning, or if if there's a, a low in the coverage that he is receiving, <laughs> he'll tweet something and get the coverage again. Something so he, outrageous. Uh, something outrageous that which captures it, the attention of the audience, which then gets shared and reshared so much that you know it builds a lot of engagement. Well, I, I want you all to comment on this because I was thinking as you were talking. Uh, yeah, you know, some of this is happenstance, and and but a lot of it's calculated, uh, e- even through the the Trump campaign. I, I'm thinking back to his terminology in the Republican primary, lying Ted. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. It, it very quickly translates to social media. Now it's crooked Hillary. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, the drain the swamp mm-hmm. uh, hashtag. All of those. Uh, don't strike me as being happenstance, but they're 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 quick bites that are targeted uh, that we haven't seen before in right, in past right. campaigns. They they're a nice shortcut, but then you know also. But they're they're also targeted. They're they're targeted pings. They are targeted pings, and they have that uh, that appeal. You know, the hashtag itself was not an institutional invention. The hashtag itself is something that that. Uh, brewed up from the people, you know, in it's it's called folksonomy. It's something that maybe the institutions don't invent themselves. It was never intended by Twitter, but people started figuring out that they could agree on, you know, have this inter intersubjective agreement on the fact that the the pound sign was going to be useful to help introduce a shortcut. So here it comes, you know, there's the pound sign, here it comes, Black Lives Matter. And then, speaking of controlling the message, you know, one of the things that Trump said that was outrageous was that it's going to be the Muslims' problem. They have to go out and report their neighbors. Well, so we saw sort of this silly hashtag, Muslims report. And then all these funny things begin to happen. You know, really stings the candidate. However, somebody's going to the store. Somebody's brushing their teeth. That exactly. Kind of exactly. Right. Right. But but the real problem here is we do live in what's called a filter bubble. We have our filter bubbles, and that means 
explain that. that. I am going to guess, at least, that the four people sitting around this table get exposed to a lot of the same kinds of information. Okay. And there are going to be a lot of people who are not sitting in this table who are exposed to other information. So when we talk about social media being this, you know, frontier, this great wild west democracy where we all share and we all have an equal voice, well, that's not true. That's not true. First of all, the majority of social media power still rests with legacy media. And what what Lake was talking about? You mean uh, news entities? That's exactly uh, exactly tweeting out or or posting or whatever. So what Lake says on Twitter might be picked up by Jerry, but let's say you know Joe the plumber out there, remember him, is not ever going to hear about those things, or what he does hear are going to be filtered through a frame that they are not speaking in. So Karen has touched upon a very important point uh, regarding how we tend to separate ourselves or shield ourselves from negative stuff that we don't believe in. A personal example, I do not follow real Donald Trump's Twitter page. I have many reasons for that. Um, When I want to research something, I do go to that uh, profile or even pull up data from other sources. But I don't follow it because I don't want to show that, firstly, I, I first cannot you know, endorse it as if this is a sign of endorsement, Mm -hmm. but also because I just don't want to see that uh, negativity. It's really hurtful. It just, um, I give you a personal example. I go for exercise in the morning and the first thing you see in that, in that fitness center is all these screens with Fox (laughs) News and CNN. And every day it's that same thing and so much Mm -hmm. negativity that it just ruins my day and I just don't want to look at it. Right. And same concept applies here. Just like in human relationships, if there are some negative people, we try to be away from them. And what does data tell us? Analytics also tells us a very similar story. In social network analytics, we can see a graph of people called nodes and how they connect to each other. It's fascinating, uh, exactly what Karen just said, that we see there's this red group of people and then there's this blue group of people. They hardly talk to each other. They're talking to themselves within those nodes. Mm -hmm. There are very few instances in which they can jump through those nodes and then talk to each other. And that would be a very desirable thing. But unfortunately, that's not the way it works. And part of that is passive in reference to the algorithms, algorithm, algorithms in reference to what mm-hmm. is uh, uh, being fed to our, our our own social media outlets. But then part of it is also uh, active. If we choose to hide certain individuals so we don't see their post, and I think it's an experiment. I did that, that in this particular uh, election campaign, and just last week I decided, well, I'm going to follow all of the <laughs> individuals that I previously hid. And there are uh, web pages that they cite that I am unfamiliar with. There are publications that I do not read that they're referencing. And so there's the whole uh, resource out there that each of these groups are feeding from and feeding into that um, help establish uh, the credibility of their beliefs, their mm-hmm. their values, it supports their ideas, supports their candidate. And I, I think we have to be aware that um, multiple populations do that. And so it's not just one particular faction that is only listening to their publications or their television stations. There are other factions that are doing the very same thing. You were talking uh, Lake and, and Karen uh, about celebrities mm-hmm. and and the the retweet possibilities or the targeting possibilities with De Niro etc. This and Jerry, you can probably confirm or, or deny this, but to <laughs> me, this seems to be the campaign of surrogates. Uh, in past mm-hmm. campaigns, you heard of a spokesperson, perhaps, but we didn't have the label surrogates of people who are paid to go on media to say positive things about their candidate and, and to give the spin. Is First of all, before I get to my question, is that a new concept? 
The use of surrogates, typically uh, the use of surrogates has, we see the use of surrogates in negative attacks more often than not because you want, the candidate wants to distance him or herself from any negativity. Um, that, I would say, has been somewhat suspended <laughs> yeah, in this right, particular right. campaign. Uh, but we see surrogates, uh, particularly for Trump, trying to explain or to reframe uh, what the candidate has said. And then um, for uh, Clinton, we really don't see as many surrogates other than just promoting and getting out the vote. We're not we're using we're seeing the surrogates being used for very different things. In the old days, vice presidential candidates uh, took that role as absolutely as, as, as too the, risky with Trump a, as the mad dog. I remember yeah. even back with Obama, Joe Biden was the the guy out on, on the front lines uh-huh. being sure. being Mr. Nasty, com, so Obama could be presidential. Absolutely, uh, but okay. So assuming that there are surrogates, and you talk about celebrities, all these surrogates have major social media well let me fo- just following let me just mention while you're you know while I'm interrupting you <laughs> <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> let me just mention the kind of surrogates that you've just been speaking about Michelle Obama last couple of things we've really read about her and we've seen that were just big huge impactful speeches were the DNC speech and her speech after she got really angry about the Trump tapes in New Hampshire. Very few people watched that entire speech. That speech was actually a a Trump speech for Clinton. And it was really nicely done because she did not bury her uh, support of Clinton inside this criticism of Trump. She was very clean, she was very good about it, and therefore the the, uh, speech was highly editable for social media consumption. So this was a very widely shared, what, you know, nine minutes or so, and obviously very heartfelt. She is one of the most popular people in America. And there, she does not have nearly the dislikes, the negatives that uh, Hillary has. So she's a perfect surrogate for her. And in this particular case, she's, you know, um, mom in charge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was a wonderful thing. It played very well for Clinton because it was very widely shared. In in fact, I heard uh, just today that uh, over the weekend the the Trump campaign was uh, through the the management was saying, mm-hmm. well, uh, they've got Joe Biden out there. They've got Bernie, the the, the president. They've got they've got Bernie. They've mm-hmm. got uh, the first lady. Yeah, look at all these powerful surrogates, mm-hmm. and and we don't have many, and so mm-hmm. feel sorry for us. <laughs> well, it's difficult, too, for Trump's party, the party of Lincoln, to be speaking now with one voice. They're struggling, obviously, with being yeah. able to. Right. So when you've got a Twitter account or some, some other social network account that's administered by Paul Ryan or Ted Cruz, any of these people, they don't quite they don't quite jibe. They don't go together. So it's really hard for a candidacy to stay on message. So go, I just want to go back and qualify no. something in reference to uh, the use of surrogates for negative attacks. It's at this time in the general campaign where we do see the um, uh, the, the peers mm-hmm. and the, the party leaders. The last from, two weeks. The last two weeks coming out and, and rallying mm-hmm. the troops. Uh, so this is it's it's not uncommon to see a Michelle Obama or or a Biden coming out and speaking on behalf of their party representative. But to make Karen's point, the the Republican Party seems to be so splintered Absolutely. at this point that you're not seeing the same kind of counterattack. Well, and a lot of that comes down to the primary campaign, where all of the individuals who would be stumping for Trump were basically ostracized and criticized mm-hmm. not only during the debates face-to-face but in the, the rallies as well as through the tweets. And um, Trump and his campaign may have been responsible for some of those tweets, but then other people picked them up and let's, shut them around. Let's talk, though, about the surrogates that are on mainstream media, mm-hmm. the, the, the pundits that, that sometimes they get labeled as. Uh, you know, the Paul Begala's, mm-hmm. et, et, et cetera. Yeah, 
they all use social media to advance th- their points of view. Are they the same as celebrities? Should we count them? Well, you can take Sean, Sean Hannity as a celebrity. Yeah. He makes yeah. no bones about Absolutely. it. He okay. calls himself not a journalist. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think when we talk about celebrities and politicians, there's a considerable overlap there. Politicians, and and this is one reason that Trump is the Republican nominee, is he knows how to be an entertainer. He's an entertainer first, and therefore he was able to engage public attention in a way that's just mystifying for us. On the other, you know, and I'm sure other people can answer your question better than I can, but I wanted to sneak in something that's just sort of a factoid is, Sure. We, we can't, I think, separate out, so, separate out social media from traditional media. Mm-hmm. So what's happening is, you know, they pick up on each other. For example, we have this kind of feedback loop where maybe something starts out with social media, it goes to mainstream media, it comes back to social media. Best example, the clearest example is going to be uh, Michael Brown and Ferguson. We start out with something that's very local, that's very grassroots, very much of the people. Right. Then mainstream media have to have to report it because social media start eating their lunch. And then it becomes a big thing and it comes back to Black Lives Matter or Ferguson or something like that. And then it enters the public conversation. Although with social media at this point, you know, as we said before, there isn't that much public conversation. There isn't, it isn't uh, that much public debate. What there is is so much negativity that we're seeing in this particular campaign. We always talk about negative campaigning, criticize, you know, one candidate criticizing the other one for campaigning negatively. I didn't say that right, negatively. But in, in this particular case, what we have is now there's campaign negative um, fatigue. Negative campaigning fatigue. And what, do you, what do you mean by well, that? Well, so you see people who have their social media, media accounts, they're hearing so much through their news feed from friends they might have that they don't hide or they don't. <laughs> Relatives yeah. you can do yeah. nothing about. <laughs> right, right. And actually my relative did something about me. He, he uh, broke up with me yeah, on I social mean, media. It was really, it was weird in the family. You know, here's a kid I grew up with. You know, he's six years old. Now right? you're blocked. Huh? Right. Um, but, and you seem <laughs> pissed off about it. <laughs> but, but so what happens is a lot of people withdraw. You know, they just say, okay, I'm tired of this. There's so much talk. There's so much all talk all the time. It's, I mean, you know, it's kind of like watching Fox News. There you are. You are hearing it. And so you just say, okay, I'm shutting down. I'm done with media. And then there are the other people on social media who they're just repeating what celebrities say or they're repeating what these pundits say mostly. Yeah. And they're doing it second and third hand. So you've got a person who maybe has never seen a pundit on TV, but somebody they know has repeated what the pundit said, and so it distills down to who they're going to vote for, and they can say these hashtags, but they can't tell you where they come from. And adding to that, um, yes, this is a very important consideration that people are um, fatigued. There is research that does talk about social media fatigue, and then there is other research that talks about if we look at the proportion of people who are tweeting, for example, just looking at Twitter as a medium, there are a lot more people retweeting than generating original content. And that is that this phenomenon spans across different social media platforms. Mm -hmm. A very few uh, number of people from the wider um, uh, pool of audiences, I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, the number of total number of people on social media, very few actually say something or very few do something. And, and that's very interesting. Um, there is research that talks about how the survival of communities hinges upon mm-hmm. people saying something or participating in some way or another. Um, retweeting is easy, and that's why we see something interesting related to retweeting when people put on their profiles, retweets are not endorsements. Um, Trump um, actually was in hot waters because of that. He retweeted something and he said, I just retweeted. I, I never said it myself. So that's an so, interesting... 
from white supremacists. Right, at, at right. I, I guess that yeah. w- that's what yeah. it was. Um, and so does it really mean something when we reshare something or retweet? Um, does it not mean that we are trying to say that this is what we believe in? Uh, but people may think otherwise, and there is a lot more room to understand this phenomena better, which also makes analytics quite challenging in the sense that we are, if we're counting them by numbers, then there might be a lot of people in there who are not believing on it, but they just want to show to their audiences that this is what this guy said. Uh, but they, they're not saying that we don't believe on it, whereas others may assume that they are endorsing it. So there are a lot of these different ch- layers of challenges that we encounter when we're analyzing big data. Um, similar is the case with sentiment. Um, a lot of those sentiment tools can safely predict from 75% to 80% um, of where the sentiment lies, positive or negative or neutral. Um, so we cannot say with utmost certainty that this is what the sentiment is like because language is and text-based analytics is 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 quite challenging. Um, yeah. uh, th- Let me just, before you yeah. go back to Jerry, I know you want to go back to Jerry because he hasn't talked lately, but I really want to just add No, I on. want to talk, but go ahead. <laughs> stop, stop it. I, I just wanted to add on, just, you know, Lake brings up some, something very important about retweeting. Most retweets of articles and things that aren't, you know, just aren't tweets, but but more than tweets, People do not read before they tweet them, before Uh, they retweet them. And in many, many cases, many, many cases, you'd be surprised. I sound like Trump now, I know. Um, They don't even open the article. You mean don't even read the headline or the lead? They read the headline. Or probably some keywords, and that's all they do. And And then they retweet it because it makes them look smart. And, and active. And, and you know. active. And it makes you, if you're on social media, you want to have people see your tweets. It's a lot of trouble to tweet effectively, quite frankly. Right. And by seeing something that looks like... Yeah, crafting that 140 characters is you know difficult what? sometimes. Uh, really well, I can't is. remember the name of the makes guy. Makes me a better writer sometimes. <laughs> no, no. I, I can't remember the guy, the, uh, the European before Voltaire. He got credited with it, which was... I'm sorry, my friend, for writing you such a long letter. I did not have time to write you a short one. And that applies. No, seriously, <laughs> right. it applies so well to Twitter because people don't know. People haven't been trained in J school, and they don't know how to be concise. That's right. Trump That's a, does. You know? He gets it. He yeah, knows. It, he it, knows it, what it, he can do in but, boom. Years. but last thing I would like to add related sure. to what um, the kind of style Trump has. Um, it could be very aggressive. It could be seen as rude by some. There is research that talks about science communication. And this was an experimental study that I just recalled um, in which scientists who were aggressive in their communication were not as effective in re- getting their message across. So I'm not sure if it applies to the political arena, uh, and, and especially in case of Trump and Clinton, but I can predict, or forecast at least, that even though there is a lot of entertainment value in what he says, Trump, uh, but it may not reach or at least even change people's way of thinking. Well, it may but, do the opposite, actually. But but, but the. Don't you think those 3 a.m. tweets about uh, the former Miss Universe's weight, uh, I mean, some people are saying that that was a turning point. But think about what impression is that giving to an average Republican who may be very, he he or she may be clinging on to those values, the Republican values, but may despise what Trump is doing uh, because of his aggressive behavior. And that might have to do something with psychology. Human beings do not like that kind of behavior, even though they may enjoy it for a little bit of time. We don't mm-hmm. usually hold bullies in, in good stead. Right. And that's <laughs> a human bu- thing. Yeah. Bully is, is a negative word, no matter how you cut it. And that's led to, I think, a lot of the fatigue factor in reference to the negativity as well. But in reference to social media, one of the things I was going to say that uh, stems from both what Lake and Karen mentioned is that there are a lot of blurred lines in reference to – and boundaries in reference to the, the personal and the institutional, uh, the credible, the, the, the lack of credibility. Um, the perception of having a, a personalized relationship with this 
uh, leader because you have, are following them on Twitter account, but then, then the reality that uh, you never really know this person and maybe you do despise what um, he or she um, has to say. And, and so I think we're still learning as consumers how to use this, how to accept it into our own lives. Um, and the technology is moving fast uh, um, that uh, contributes to our, our understanding or lack of understanding as well. Uh, because I think that one of the things that uh, uh, that uh, some of the my friends that that mm-hmm. I follow when they are forwarding particular articles, they say you have to read the entire article. There's this preface. Uh, that they are now using that says if you get to the end of the article, you'll see that there's some really good things. So they're providing almost this Hence, I review. Read <laughs> I've read it. So they're not just passing it on because that is uh, mm-hmm. the, the, ten, the tendency just to uh, – it's a real quick – I can send this out because I can tell from the headline it's going to reinforce – um, uh, something that I already believe and that my, my followers believe or my network believes as well. But you, and, and to keep on that point, the best and most effective posters are the ones who are going to curate, the ones who are actually going to capture the essence of that article and give you a lead, Tom, yes. as you do on yes. Facebook, I know, and give uh, people a reason to maybe want to read that article. Absolutely. It's, it's, inter- it's interesting, though. I post things, and because of... Uh, sort of a journalistic background, uh, I don't want to take a, a public stand, but I'll post something and say, this is well-written, or this mm-hmm. is interesting, or this brings up points. Please comment. Sure. Mm-hmm. People won't comment. They don't. It makes it, me so they, mad. They won't comment, though. And But if I had said, I agree with this, mm-hmm. here's an article, and this this is the way I feel. Mm-hmm. I'd get all kinds of posts <laughs> well, you know, you know <laughs> telling what, though, me um, what kind of an idiot I am. <laughs> you, you will, and that, that reminds me, I want to follow up on something Jerry said, which was, you know, Jerry said something that made me think about I- ideologies and getting expressed on social media. And one thing that the Trump campaign, I shouldn't call it the Trump campaign, just plain Trump has done, and everybody, I think everybody here has seen this happen, He has unleashed the bigotry, the misogyny, all those things that have politely, for the most point, stayed under the bed covers of public discourse. So if we, but one more thing, if you're looking at comment threads, you know, you see some very nasty things being said when people will make sort of, um, you know, anti-misogyny posts or something like that. People come along and they'll, you know, use some amazing words. The other thing that we see, and I, I wanted to just mention this um, traditional media, legacy media thing. We know that most millennials now are getting their political information from social networks. And many millennials, along with people on up the food chain, I should say, the Gen Xers, are getting a lot of political news from late night television, such sure. as... You know, John John Oliver, Stephen Colbert, blah, blah. And one thing that was – this is a great example. I think people should look at this. When Trevor Noah of The Daily Show sent out his correspondent to, I think, some stadium parking lot in Pennsylvania and did one of these, you know, person-on-the-street kinds of things, filtered as they are, ask all these questions to these people and – you know, I, one of the questions would be if, um, so what could Trump do to get you not to vote for him? Okay, so it's very funny, and it reveals all this ideological stuff that's really disturbing. What happened with that is, of course, all these people saw it. Not nearly a majority of people who were interested saw it, but lots and lots of people are seeing it passed around. Yeah, 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 the, the, the reuse uh, right. Uh, it gets back to what Lake was saying about user-generated content is not the majority of content. We'll be back after this message. At the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University, students and faculty aren't just ready for change. They're hungry for it. 
The Scripps College of Communication was awarded $878,000 by Ohio University for an immersive media initiative that will allow students to become skilled leaders in immersive media, especially virtual and augmented reality. The college's Game Research and Immersive Design Lab will serve as the hub for the initiative and provide several million dollars worth of equipment, processes, intellectual property, and award-winning scholars and partnerships for the project. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. One thing that I wanted to talk about, and it's difficult to, to talk about, and I, I'm, I'm a product of the 1960s to probably the most violent period of our political history. Uh, certainly in modern time, we had three major assassinations, President Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and, and Senator Robert Kennedy within uh, a five-year period. Um, I, I get concerned when I see social media rhetoric ratcheting to a, a feverish pitch and bringing out the, the concerns that you've all talked about, the, the misogyny and the, the, the fear factors, uh, whether it's ethnic fear, religious fear, or the paranoia that we, that we have sometimes in our society. I, I fear that if there is um, tedium with social mm -hmm. media and a lot of people turn it off, the people who might have a tendency to violence would not turn it off. And, and I, f I have no proof, but I fear social media as being an instigator of violence. Is, is that totally misplaced on my part? and just part of my filter of being raised in the 60s? Well, the jury's out on whether it's an instigator. It, it is a conduit that has allowed people to ratchet up the decibels so that when, when Trump says, for example, in, in his speech and then on his, in his tweets, Hillary is coming after your guns, you know, just the way he will put um, put a certain frame the issue of the Second Amendment argument on the part of Clinton's campaign. And then he'll say, the Second Amendment people might be doing something, might do something about that. So he's suggesting, there's an argument, of course, he, you know, he doesn't exactly walk it back, but he says, oh, well, I wasn't saying, I wasn't trying to instigate violence. But there is this bully pulpit now that, as Jerry points out, does not have any rules. You cannot control the message. You cannot control where the message goes, who's receiving the message, and how they are receiving it. So, of course, a lot of Trump supporters are very much believing, oh, yes, she's coming after our guns. All the Democrats are, quite frankly, and she is a Clinton. And so Trump's able to, you know, pour some kerosene on that fire. So, yeah, who knows what's going to happen? If I were her, I don't think I'd be wanting to go out without glass all around me. You know, it's, it's just uh, it's a terrible thing. But it's also about that filter bubble. It's about when we hear a message framed in a certain way, a story framed in a certain way, that story being told, that narrative being consistent to us and not with what we consider to be the other side, that's another conversation, then what we have is we have people who are not talking to each other and therefore not understanding that basis for human dignity and communication and sameness that Lake is wanting to do something about. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to give people, I want to wrap this up if we can, but I want to give people sort of a last thought and, and either about what we're talking about or something mm -hmm. different. So, Jerry, go ahead. Well, I'll, I'll follow up and then um, uh, return to uh, uh, some comments in reference to the general uh, 
goal, I think, of politicians and their social media presence. First of all, uh, through social media, it's certainly a way of organizing, and we can't control whether it's organizing for good or bad. Um, we can't uh, necessarily control what is said or how something is said, and so any attempt to do so, I think, would be somewhat problematic. But we also have to be realistic about it. I think in reference to political candidates, uh, we've seen some uh, good and some bad examples in this particular uh, campaign in reference to trying to control an image. Um, from a practical standpoint, working within a campaign, we would want a candidate's message to be consistent across platforms, um, to be uh, proactive as opposed to consistently reactive. Uh, but from what we've seen in this campaign, uh, that's not necessarily going to capture the media attention. It's not necessarily going to capture the public's attention. And so uh, as we are continually seeing candidates rely on the different media platforms, uh, we're going to learn by trial and error and success and failure. Um, and I think we've seen a couple of examples in this in this particular campaign of of what does work and captures the attention, but also um, what obscures the the important information, and and so what isn't being presented on social media in this campaign, I think, is more important than what is getting the attention. And so if candidates can work to use this platform to their advantage and capture the attention and the enthusiasm in more productive ways, then I think we can address some of Lake's concern and move forward and use it for a deliberative um, uh, intent as opposed to making uh, simple statements and not willing to listen to what others have to say. Karen? Well, I, and you wanted to talk uh, a I little wanted, bit about money as well. Yes, I, I want to mention, yes, it's an expression that you and I know that they haven't heard probably in its, in its context, follow the money. Yeah, I absolutely. think we know where that came from. Well, it, you know, it's always, frankly, it's always the money. So social media, we we're given to understand, saves money for a business, a campaigner, whatever. So, yeah, social media has allowed these people, these campaigns, all of them, all the Republicans, all the Democrats that were there, enough space so that we've seen them save anywhere between hundreds of thousands to up to a billion dollars that they would have had to spend through traditional advertising means, that they were left to be able to spend in other ways. That could mean augmenting their traditional advertising money, their travel. For Clinton, and she's played a good game at this, her ground game has been enormous. The organization, right? The Clinton campaign has spent a lot of money on the ground game. So local offices opening up, a lot of, you know, so that there's so many people who get called down to do their phoning, who go out and do the, uh, the visits, the canvassing. You can't do that for free. So if you have social media there to do so much for you, you can do the research, you can do the canvassing, open the local offices. And I think that has been just one tip of the iceberg of what social media has been able to bring to politicians. We'll give um, you last word, like. Well, um, this country has been divided by a great deal. We see that in the data that we have. Um, it's also quite obvious that we have two major camps and a few more. Um, maybe analytics can help us unite people now. Um, it's okay to disagree. It's okay to have different opinions. But what I feel is very important post-elections, no matter who wins, that this country and the people should win. And that is only possible when they talk to each other. In spite of their differences, they need to say something. They need to engage with other people. It's okay, and it's quite understandable that many would not agree. Uh, we may not change our stances that we have had for a long time. But at least we know that there is a human sitting at the other end who is ready to listen to us, or at least we are willing to take the time and the effort to say what we feel is right in, in, a, in a nice way. I think that's very important. That's what needs to be promoted. 
um, post-elections, uh, and even now. We need that more than any we ever needed. And what we could derive from this, um, if I may conclude, um, sure. what all what this all means, is that yes, as when we think about um, our role as individuals in societies, as they say, see something, see when you see something, say something. I'm not a big fan of this thing uh, because it could lead to a lot of misunderstandings um, in the way it's seen. But what I really want to conclude with is that. When we see social media participation, I think it would be a much different world if we t started taking stances. We may, we do not have to be, and we should never be rude or um, crossing certain limits in terms of how we want to talk to people, just, just like propriety. we do in in, yeah. in in daily lives and in, in face to face. But at least take some stands. When we don't do that, we are leaving other people to assume that we're fine with it. And that is, in my opinion, one of the reasons we've reached this day, when, that we have people un, in candidate as, who are candidates for president, and we, 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 we are, we're concerned about this country and we're concerned about the world because of what they say. Um, they've reached this point because we have allowed them to, because we have never said something when we were supposed to. And I think it's very important, tying back to my argument about lack of participation, instead of just retweeting things and just feeling, wondering what others would say, say something. Um, participate. It is our media. It, social media is there because we are able to say things. <clears throat> and when we do not say something, just retweet something and not saying that, you know, I feel that this is wrong because of these reasons, or I really like this because I feel this way. I think that would really change a lot of narrative. It would also let people, <clears throat> because there is a social norm effect. When we don't say something, people start assuming, oh, there are a lot of followers that he has or she has. Oh, we all agree on that because <clears throat> when they're not saying anything, obviously that means yes. But when we start saying things, it might even change the narrative. It might show to all these, you know, the negative people that have come out, what, what, what one candidate has done is that it is, summoned the worst qualities in human beings to not remain private, to come out in the public, and that has made life hell for certain people. When, when we start saying things, it might create this effect, overall effect would be that it's not acceptable. Look, there are people who don't like it, but when we don't say something, they feel that we're in majority just because there's this guy standing on the podium and he's saying it on live TV nationally and it's being retweeted it must be okay. Well, it's not. Today, we've been talking to Dr. Jerry Miller, a professor at Ohio University and an expert in presidential candidate imaging. Dr. Karen Riggs, head of Ohio University's social media certificate program. And Dr. Lake Khan, the director of the social media analytics research team as part of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum on iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through iTunes. If you have questions or comments about any of our podcasts, you may direct them to me via email. That's at Hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Again, Hodson at ohio.edu.